we continue through the book of Genesis, we find ourselves in a passage. Um, we find ourselves in a passage that speaks towards God's work to put within his people. Now, this is really important. Okay, God's work to put within his people a desire for reconciliation within broken relationships that brings him an incredible amount of glory. Let me say that one more time because this is, this is huge for what we see going on in Genesis chapter 32. Okay, what are, we, what are we talking about today and what are we going to observe over the, over the course of these verses in our time together? Man, we're going to find ourselves here this morning in a passage that speaks towards God's work to put within his people a desire for reconciliation. Right, a desire for reconciliation within broken relationships that will consequently bring him an incredible amount of glory. That's where we are, um, and that is what we are going to be talking about. Genesis 32 is a case study on the importance of context and continuity. All right, context and continuity, a consideration that teachers of God's word must make due to the nature of preaching itself. All right, when you tackle a, a book that is 50 chapters long and you're given 40 to 45 minutes a week, you have to break it up. Now, what this means is that you and I have to make every effort to connect the right dots so that we are able to best understand the author's intent in writing. And so for that, all of this to take place, we've got to do a little bit of context work. Now, in Genesis 32, Moses records Jacob's journey home. 20 years Jacob has been away, forced to run as a result of his deceptive actions against his brother Esau. It would be a colossal understatement to say that sin's effects have been made obvious in Jacob's life. Whereas he sought refuge with his mother's brother Laban, what he found more resembled forced servitude. Yet God has worked in and through a broken world, broken circumstances, a difficult situation. For Jacob's good. Right? God is unwavering in his faithfulness and commitment. That's really the line that we landed on last week as we closed out Genesis 31. Right? It was this recognition of the Lord's unwavering nature in terms of extending grace and, and compassion. Right? His commitment to his people and his commitment to his mission, which is where those two things really exist like hand in hand, don't they? When we talk about God's commitment to his people, when we talk about God's commitment to his mission, those are really one and the same, aren't they? Never again would Jacob have to deal with his manipulating uncle. And now... The same kid who crossed into Haran with nothing but a stick has been blessed with wisdom and maturity, with family and material possession. As Jacob departed Canaan in Genesis 28, 12, flashback, the angels of God met him. At which point the Lord extended a promise to Jacob. Verse 13, words that would shape 
Jacob's understanding. Words that would shape our understanding and confidence in the movement of God in these scenes. In these scenes, in Genesis 28 and 29 and 30, 31, 32. You guys get the picture, right? In these scenes, but not only in these scenes. We see in Genesis 28, 12, and 13, verses following, words that shape our understanding and confidence in in these scenes, that is, our own lives. The Lord says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham. This is back in Genesis 28, on the way, right, on Jacob's way out of Canaan. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and of of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give you, God says. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. This is incredibly repetitive at this point. This is a promise that we we have articulated and seen articulated in multiple places up until this point. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. You guys with me? Okay, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. This is in Genesis 28, 12, 13, 14, 15. It's in that portion right there. Now, we find ourselves this morning in Genesis 32, in which we are seeing the fruition of the promise of God in Genesis 28. Through all the hardship, through all the difficulty, without a doubt, Jacob could not have imagined the length of time that he would be under old Uncle Laban. But the Lord has displayed his faithfulness. You guys with me? The Lord has displayed his commitment to his work and to his mission. The Lord has displayed his faithfulness to his people. He continues on, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised. Then we see Jacob wake up and he goes on about his business. His journey continues and what would follow would be 20 years, 20 years in the region of Padamaram. Now, as he returns again, the angels of God meet him. And one must imagine that in this moment, Jacob is floating. We can't help but but think of the number of times that he must have retold of those moments from Genesis 28 to his family. Things are, things are hard, y'all, right? Like things are, things are difficult. I had no idea that I would be here this long, right? And the road would be this rough. Man, but I remember, right, as I, as I left Canaan, at the Lord promising to, to do these things, to bring these things about in my life. Now, as he approaches home, what had previously been confined to memory in the sake of, for this point, for, from Jacob's perspective, and imagination from the perspective of his family, is being made sight. Look with me at verse 2. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaam, two camps. 
Moses paints a picture of the landscape for his readers, complete with, yeah, you heard it right, encamped angels. That's what Jacob's talking about. As he walks into the region, he recognizes the presence of angels, and he says, well, like, I've got a camp, and like, these angels have got a camp, and so we're going to just call this place two camps. Through their presence, we see the Lord solidifying in Jacob's heart and mind. His commitment to his word. We're reminded of what the psalmist says in Psalm 34 verse 7 in which he writes, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. You see, we need to see this. We need to see this morning the purpose in Jacob's pain. We see now that Jacob has been set free. He's returned home just as the Lord had promised that he would, having served not primarily as the subject of Laban's cruelty, but the object of God's relentless grace. This is the distinction that I want us to focus on making over the course of the next few moments. Because as we reflect back on the situation and circumstances and life as normal for Jacob from Genesis 28 through 31, we would say, oh my gosh, Look at how Jacob has found himself the subject of oppressive Laban. Tricked, deceived on multiple occasions, manipulated to the point that he turns around and before he knows it, 20 years have evaporated. At which point we might say, what a difficult hand that Jacob has been dealt But what we must realize in light of what we observe through his return into Canaan is that this has been more a story, not of Laban's cruelty, but of God's relentless grace. Now we say that, and the reality is that it might seem as though that is just a slight variation in language. Right, that I just like that I just made something out of origami up here. And it's like, well, you really spun that from a glass half empty to a glass half full. But I would argue that that this slight shift means everything. Right? One reason that we have spent the better part of ten months in Genesis is so that we would see God's intentionality in redemption and rescue. Right? This whole thing is less about Laban and more about God. More about God's kindness and compassion. And more about God's persistence. And as we have already stated, His relentless grace, I want you to consider that term as we continue to unpack the, the grace observable by God here within this passage and the life of this family. We see a grace that Kent Hughes, anybody heard of Kent Hughes before? Throw your hands up. Okay, a couple of you guys. Awesome. Dude, Kent Hughes is incredible. He is the professor of practical theology at Westminster Theological Seminary, at which point everybody in this room goes, man, that's incredible. I didn't know that. Right? I didn't know that theology could indeed be practical. This guy's got a job at a seminary in Wheaton, Illinois, in which he teaches this. He describes the grace observable in light of this story as an intrusive grace. He describes it as a tenacious and contending grace. He describes God's grace as renovating. 
as he makes Jacob into the man that he intended him to be. A work that we see having taken place and a work that we will observe over the next few weeks taking place. Right, that both of those things are, in fact, true. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But, but there are things in Jacob's life that the Lord has been working, that have been taking place in order to make him into the man that he is. And there are things that will take place in order to make Jacob into the man that he would become. Hughes writes of God's fight with Jacob and of God's fight for Jacob. A fight that is taking place at every turn. A perspective on the story that serves to be a super helpful one as we come into Genesis 32 part 2 next week. In which we will actually observe a familiar passage for many of us in which Jacob wrestles with God. Who's familiar with that passage? Okay, so we're planting seeds now, okay? Do you understand what I'm talking about in terms of context and continuity? What we're saying this week and what we've observed over previous weeks all sets the stage for us to understand what's going on in Jacob's life here and now. Consequently, what has taken place and what is taking place assists you and I in understanding what's going on in our lives and the way that the Lord is, is working to glorify himself and for our ultimate good. Man, what an incredible description of the work that God is committed to. His, his wrestling with and his, his wrestling for. I don't know if that image captures you the same way that it does me, but it, it, it captures my imagination. I'm a visual learner. Any visual learners? Yeah, a few, maybe. And so I actually get this, this picture, right, of the, Lord, of the Lord grappling with, of the Lord wrestling with, and, and in the process, showing his character, displaying his nature to Jacob in this, in this most unique way. All of this, I believe, is intended to, to mold our own comprehension, our own understanding of God's work, both in salvation as well as sanctification. And so I want to talk about these two elements in just a moment. But let's think about what we know up until this point. The Bible makes it clear. If we had only the first 32 chapters of the book of Genesis, we would have that which is sufficient to show us our separation from God, and the punishment that we deserve as those who have spurned our Creator. We have everything that we need in order to to show for us our need, to display for us our rebellion. We read of the sin of Jacob, and each and every one of us are left uh, connecting. Right? We're left connecting and we're going, wow, that sounds, that sounds really familiar. Like I've been in a similar place. I've, I've done similar things. I think a similar way. The first 32 chapters of the book of Genesis are sufficient for drawing to the surface an understanding of need for each and every one of us. Understanding of of separation, rebellion from God. We get that from the first 32 chapters. But let's consider the redemptive story as a whole. At which point, having been made aware of our sin and separation, we are left to go, but God. Right, but, but God, while we were yet sinners, sent his son Jesus, born of a virgin, born under the law, to fulfill the righteous standard of the Father for us. Right, to, to give his life for us as he became sin on the cross. 
Right? It's in salvation that we see God in his grace and kindness pursue after the wicked and rebellious. Now, this is going to be really important. Okay, so, so lean in. I know we were making just a few jokes over here to this side before we started this morning about taking notes. If you're a note taker, I mean, consider some of the things that we're saying and make note of them. These are super helpful and they're going to shape the way that we understand the rest of this story. In salvation, we see God in his grace and kindness pursue after the wicked and rebellious. We see God electing to intercede as he intrudes, to borrow from the terminology leveraged by Kent Hughes, in our lives, saving us. As he what? As he takes our hearts captive by his spirit. This is what salvation is. He, He opens our eyes to see our sin and his holiness, at which point the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, in spite of our inclination toward evil, becomes sweet, sweet news that leads us to turn from sin, now committing all that we are and all that we have to Christ. God has and is doing this in Jacob. And if you're you're here this morning and maybe you have been exploring Jesus, but believing in him or, or following after him, well, that's not you. I would encourage you to consider the Spirit's work, right? The Spirit's work in your heart, in the hearts of in the hearts of men this morning. Is God doing this in you as he has done in Jacob? The encouragement then, of course, would be to look to Christ, to turn from your sin, and to call out to this King Jesus today. Not only do we see God's work of salvation reconciling God and man by his grace, but we see it in sanctification through the life of Jacob, the ways in which God's people remain the object of his renovating grace. This is the picture and the pattern of God being laid out for you and I. That leads us to a question, right? So I'm a Christian. Now what? What is God doing and what am I doing? Man, these are great questions. Questions whose answers can be informed by what we see in this passage. But we need to back up a little bit. We're very early in this story, okay? We're planting and laying a foundation that's going to surely be helpful over the next few weeks. Consider the following question. I'm going to give you a second to consider it. I'm going to ask it. Don't feel like you need to answer it out loud. In fact, that would be awkward, so just don't. <laughs> right? But think about it. The question is, is this. Man, what is it that led Jacob to bounce from Cain in the first place? What was it? What was it that, that led Jacob to depart from Canaan in the first place? This is a pivotal question for us to understand more clearly what God is doing here in this passage. It was sin, wasn't it? In Genesis 28, we see Jacob physically distancing himself from the consequences of his actions. Are we familiar with this behavior, right? Sin and this, and this desire that then exists within us to create distance from the consequences of whatever spoken sin might be. We see Jacob instructed by, by mom, happy Mother's Day, mom, right? To run for his life. 
literally, to run for his life, leaving everything that he knows and owns to travel east. Because Esau, his brother, the the subject of Jacob's sin, although not the ultimate subject of Jacob's sin, certainly a, a, a member that has been affected, right, collaterally by what has taken place here, wants to kill him. Right, his older brother, having had his birthright stolen from his perspective, from out from under him, desires now to end the life of his younger brother. And so mom says, hey, why don't you, um, like, head out, <laughs> right? Like, that's the Kirk version of what that looks like. Why don't you head on out, right? And, um, and here's what we'll do. When Esau cools down, I'll reach back out, and then you can come back home. Consequently, what we find in Genesis chapter 30 is that it wouldn't be mom who would ultimately reach out and call Jacob back home, but it would be God. And that God had been doing something in the life of, of Jacob, and now this, this work is preparing to progress on to the next season. A call from God that brought with it undoubtedly a great sense of relief. Man, it's time to go home, right? I've been away for much longer than I had anticipated, and now I'm returning, going going back. I would imagine, though, that this sense of relief was followed closely by a great sense of anxiousness, right? Why? Well, because the distance that had been created in Genesis 28 from his sin is now closing, Right before Jacob, Jacob had sinned against Esau, he had sinned against the Lord, and his mother instructs him to run away. And so he does. And in his wake, man, like fire and chaos, turmoil. But Jacob was escaping some of that. Are we getting what's going on here, right? He escaped some of the consequence of his sin. Now, though, Jacob's being called back home. The relational carnage created by Jacob's departure, perhaps having become a a distant memory, is now brought back to the forefront. He left and there was no reconciliation. But what we will find is that there will come this desire within Jacob, observable through Genesis chapter 32, that says that there has been a work of the Lord, a work of grace, a gospel work in the heart of Jacob. That which was avoided in Genesis 28 must be dealt with, but not for the reasons that we might think. Who's familiar with the need for relational reconciliation? So I remember um, as a college student, well, I remember as a high school senior, okay, uh, I applied to a single college, and it was here, (laughs) right? Um, And I knew like four other people that went here. Um, There weren't a lot of people from my high school that came west, right? I ventured west, but not a lot of people from my high school did. And so, so what was it that led me to come west? Well, a tale as old as time, right? Like a girl, <laughs> right? A girl. I had a, I had a girlfriend, and she was coming west, and so I was like, man, I'll go west too. Like, go Braves, because we were the Braves then. This was way before Wolves days, right? So I'll be a Brave. 
everything's going to be great. Right? It's going to be really awesome. We're going to have a lot of fun. And then like all month before classes started, we broke up, <laughs> right? Which is like really awkward when you know like four or five other people on campus and like you're not really tied with any of them, but you know now that like any potential relationship with these individuals is severed because you were kind of like a major fool. So I'm processing what this looks like. And it, um, yeah, it begins to dawn on me. This is going to be like really messy and awkward, like in town or in class. Like if there is not some form of uh, relational reconciliation. And so in a, in a selfish way, like I desire to see that which would have, have been broken and like, um, like had been made really bad, like somehow like restored in some fashion, right? Not that like, hey, we're going to like date again or anything like that, but just like I want to avoid uh, the train wreck that could potentially happen as we encounter one another in like, you know, like college algebra, right? English 1101. Like I selfishly, I would like to avoid that awkwardness if at all possible. And so as I read through this passage, one thing that I was thinking was, yeah, like this should naturally be the direction that Jacob decides to go because he is returning home. And and certainly you want to avoid the potential awkwardness that Jacob might find himself in as he crosses paths with Esau in town. I'm familiar with that, and I'm sure that you guys are too, right? Oh, we've got to iron this thing out. Otherwise, it's going to be really awkward. It's going to be really messy. Man, showing back up in town 20 years after you steal your brother's birthright. You better resolve that, right? Jacob needed to resolve this. Reconciliation in this case is a must. And as a result, man, Jacob takes the initial steps. At which point we are provided insight into the why behind Jacob's motives while exposing his heart. Look with me at verse 3. This is hugely important. You're like, we're only through two verses? Yeah, we're only through two verses. I told you, we had a lot. Okay, verse 3. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Shear, the country of Edom. At which point, everyone in the room is going, okay, so what? What in the world does all of that have to do with what you just talked about? What we find through verse 3 is that Esau, through his relocation to Edom, has eliminated the possibility that he and Jacob might run into one another in the public square. Are you guys seeing what's happening here? It's at this point that we begin to see the necessity for reconciliation born not of geographical necessity, but out of spiritual necessity. Jacob feels this desire towards reconciliation with his brother, but it's not in an effort to avoid the potential awkwardness. But it's, it's something that the Lord has been doing and working in the heart of Jacob that leads him this direction. This is the work of sanctification. We talked about salvation earlier. Now we're shifting gears and we're talking about sanctification. We see a work of God within the human heart in Genesis 32. We see a work that Jesus would speak explicitly and directly toward in Matthew chapter 5, this issue of reconciliation for the people of God. That's what we're talking about here. 
This whole story, man, up until this point, is about reconciliation. It's about relational reconciliation within a really broken family system. Listen to what Jesus has to say in Matthew chapter 5. This is verse 23 for those who might be taking notes. Jesus says this, So if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Listen to this. This is incredible. It's more incredible than you might even initially understand. And so I'm going to spend a second explaining it in just a moment. He says, if, you're, if your brother has anything against you and you're, you're coming to the altar with a gift, but on your way you, you remember that your brother has something against you, verse 24, leave your gift there before the altar and go. Leave. Right, Leave your gift there and leave. To do what? Well, to be reconciled to your brother, he continues on. And then come and offer your gift. And so the picture that Jesus is painting here is this great need for relational reconciliation. And he says, here's how big a deal this is. Right? Imagine that you are traveling into town to offer your gift before the Lord. And on your way, as you prepare to approach the altar, right? Like you realize, oh, snap. Like I've got a real issue that needs to be resolved with a brother. What does Jesus say? He says, leave it here. Set it down. Stay here, offering, right? And go. And go and resolve this issue. Now, we think about the way that looks in a modern context. And we go, well, that's, well, that's relatively easy. Like if Duncan's got beef with Matt, all you guys got to do is walk across the room. In fact, you can meet in the middle, half the steps, Right? Maybe it's, it's not somebody that's here geographically, right, close to you in close proximity, but it's somebody that you can, you can call and you can say, hey, we need to chat. I don't need to, like, mount up and, like, come see you in order to resolve this issue, although some issues might be worthy of that type of treatment. What we see in the, in the scenario that's being painted by Jesus is this realization that results in one leaving, right, their offering and walking, to wherever this broken relationship in need of reconciliation exists in order to see reconciliation take place before you then come back and offer your offering. Imagine that you walked for a week to do that, right? That you walked for a week to offer this offering. And as you approach, you realize, oh, wait a second. Like we've, there's this issue that is in need of of being resolved, at which point you walk a week home and then another week back. I mean, you've invested a month in this thing before you've batted an eye. What is all that meant to show us? What, is this, what does this communicate to us? I mean, the, the value that God places on relational reconciliation. We remember that Jacob is processing through all of this. He's, he's back in town and there is no, zero reasons for him to go and to open up this old wound. In fact, we get this sense uh, as we read on through this passage that there is even a sense of fear from Jacob. Right? Unsure as to how Esau is going to respond to his uh, his presence. When he left, Esau was planning his murder. You remember this? Now, 20 years have passed, but, I mean, we can hold grudges, right? Anybody got a 20-year grudge you've been nursing in here? Like, maybe so. Like, I don't know. Man, this confrontational confrontation is unavoidable. Jacob doesn't know why, but, but we do. 
Right? For whatever reason, Jacob comes in and he goes, ah, like, I don't know what it is, but like, I cannot, like, I don't even have to worry about Esau. He's an Edom. Like, I'm going to march in and like, we're not going to cross paths. Like, word may reach him that I'm back in town. We may have to, to cross that bridge when we get there, but there's no reason for me to seek out this type of conversation right now. Only there's something in me that is compelling me this direction. Jacob would not have been able to explain this perhaps in the same way that we are. Just because we have more of the story. Like we understand the redemptive narrative. We have Matthew chapter 5. We have the Sermon on the Mount. Spiritual maturity has and is being birthed in Jacob. God has not only contended for Jacob's heart and affection, but he continues to transform these areas. This is the work of sanctification. Jacob belongs to the Lord, but now the Lord is relentlessly pursuing the heart of Jacob and transforming it in order to, as we said in the beginning, bring much glory to himself. God in the the now, even now, is in the process of redeeming a people to himself. In Genesis 32, we see God is in the process of redeeming a people to himself. Those who would, as Abraham had, believe in the power and work of God to save through the Genesis 3.15 seed, right? To, to raise the dead and to restore severed relationship with creation. This is what God is doing. Thus, man would begin to mirror this work in his actions. Do we get that? Genesis 3.15 is this promise. Hang with me here. Everybody, let's connect for a moment. In Genesis 3.15, we see this promise, right? That the Lord is going to restore that he's going to redeem, that he's going to reconcile that which has been separated back to himself. And he's going to do so through the seed of woman. Everything that we have read from Genesis chapter 3 to this point is working this direction. We have, we have practiced great intentionality to trace this redemptive seed. Right, to, to consider the plan and purposes of God in every moment in this first chapter of this beautiful book. In this first book, I'm sorry. Right, that we might understand what he is accomplishing. We see it at work in the life of Jacob. God is at work over the course of these chapters laying forth a plan to redeem all things to himself through the cross of Christ and the power of his resurrection. Here we see Jacob mirroring the type of reconciliation and redemption that God calls you and I as sinners separated into by his incomprehensible grace. Do you get the picture? Right, Jacob is showing what this looks like. You and I on this side of redemptive history, man, we have the completed canon. We know, we know, right? We know how the story goes. We're able to look back and we're able to see this in a way that Jacob is not. Jacob's heart is bent toward a desire for reconciliation because ultimately God's heart is bent towards the desire for reconciliation. That's what he's doing here. And this is what the gospel is all about. And so you go, man, we just spent like what? What are we like 35 minutes deep at this point and we've walked through four verses? Right? Why? Man, because this is an awesome opportunity for you and I to anchor in. 
right? To, to anchor down and to consider how the gospel is at work in our hearts and how our actions in light of the gospel's work are intended to bring great glory to God. They display who he is and what he is doing in and among creation. We've got to continue on. I don't even know that we've gotten through three verses yet, okay? Duncan says no. Duncan's like, I've been awake all night, and I know that. Okay, let's go to verse 3. Here we go. This next part's going to go much quicker, okay? So hang with me. Verse 3, And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob. Now we're going we're gonna to read through a big portion here and then we're going to say some things about it. So hang with me. I have sojourned with Laban and, and stayed until now. Verse 5, I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. This is the instruction for those being sent to Esau. This is what you're to communicate. And the messengers, verse 6, returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he's coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. <laughs> right? At which point, perhaps Jacob's going, This is an awful idea. <laughs> like, why did somebody not talk me out of this? We could have just coexisted, like, stupid heart, making me do things that glorify the Lord, right? This is kind of where Jacob is at this point. Verse 7. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks, herds, camels into two camps. And so now we're in the land of three camps. They're going to have to change the name of the city. Thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. I'm going to divide everything up. That way, if he just overtakes and like destroys, at least like there's half that's left. There's half that remains. Verse 9, and Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed the Jordan and now I've become two camps. That which we emphasized earlier, hey, we didn't just make that up. Jacob gets that too, right? There's this, this understanding and realization of the Lord's blessing and prospering Jacob, right? He's not in the dark, He wouldn't be caught off guard by what we're saying here this morning. Verse 11, please, Jacob says, deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers and the children. Verse 12, this is huge. But you said, I will surely do you good. And make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Verse 13. So he stayed there that night. And from what he had with him, he took and, and he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats. 200 ewes and 20 rams. 30 milking camels. Camel milk? I don't know. And their calves. 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants every drove by itself. And he said to his servants, listen to the intentionality of what's going on here. Pass on ahead of me 
and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, man, it's like the circus is coming to town. What are you going to say? Say this. Say they belong to your servant, Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And so listen to how this works. Okay, just imagine like Esau like hanging, just hanging out. And like all of a sudden, like there's just what is being described here is a drove. Right? That's, that's coming towards him. And so Esau ventures off the front porch and walks out, right? Engages the leader of the drove and says, What in the world is going on here? At which point, what Jacob has instructed said drove leader to say is articulated. Esau goes, Wow, man, that's. I don't know. Like, I don't know how to feel about all this, right? Drove, like, moves over to the side, and then what follows? Another one, right? Same message. Moves over to the side. What follows? Another one. Same message. Moves over to the side. We, we, Jacob is creating this environment, right? In which we are, it's just this, it's this wave, right? I mean, it's just like, it's like waves on the seashore. It's just hitting and hitting and hitting and hitting and hitting. Over and over again, this message is being articulated, and Esau is being forced at this point to consider that which Jacob has to say. Verse 20, and you shall say, in addition, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. Your servant Jacob is is behind us, and so here we are, and here is this gift, right? Moreover, Jacob is behind us. Move to the side. Next one. Here's this gift. Moreover, Jacob is behind us. Moves over. Moreover. You guys get the picture here, right? We're we're just rolling in and we're moving over. Rolling in, moving over. And the message is is always the same. What is the hope? We see it in verse 20. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. Man, consider the gospel implication in light of what we're seeing here. All right, we, we, we're talking all about relational reconciliation and we are confessing in this moment our need as rebellious sinners to be reconciled to a holy God. Okay, you guys with me here? Stay with me. This is incredible. All right, and we, and we consider, we think about how the natural world works. We think about how every other world religion works and we say, what is it? Well, we, we present these gifts before the Lord and we say, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps he'll receive me. Right? Perhaps my good deeds will outweigh my, my bad deeds, at which point the Lord will say, yes, I receive you, I accept you, only we find that our righteousness is filthy rags. Right? And so we can send drove after drove after drove after drove. We can do incredible things in the name of the Lord, and we can present them all before God, and they count as not. And so what is our hope? Jacob touches on it here to some extent, right? His, his hope is, is this. He says, I'll send all of these things, at which point perhaps he will accept me. Consider the certainty that we have as God's people in light of the all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus. 
Right? That we don't, we're not left going, man, perhaps the Lord will accept me. Right? Perhaps he will perceive me. Perhaps reconciliation will be realized. Perhaps this chasm that exists will be closed. But we have certainty. Right? We, have, we have certainty that through the all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus, that fellowship with God can be known, realized, and experienced. We read what Jacob's saying here, and we go, man, thank goodness for Jesus. Like, I'm so glad that God did all these incredible things, right, to pave the way for the coming seed. Man, that would rescue and save. Verse 21. So the present passed on ahead of him. And he himself stayed the night in the camp. And so we're going we're gonna to earmark this for next week. We're going to continue on because we're kind of left in this tension, aren't we? What's the question that we're asking? What's Esau going to do, right? Like how is Esau going to respond? A few things that I want us to say as we close. From Jacob here, we observe in Genesis 32 attributes consistent with an individual transformed and being transformed by God's grace. We see in verses 3 through 5, humility from Jacob. We observe contrition and confidence in God and reliance on him as he takes his heart and his concerns before the Lord in prayer. In verse 9 and 10, Jacob displays an understanding of God's kindness, his forgiveness of Jacob, and his blessing in his life. So we continue on. We see Jacob holding to the promise of God, speaking God's promise back to him as he petitions the Lord to save him again. We see this plan. For wave after wave of blessing from Jacob to Esau, culminating with Jacob's arrival. The son that has historically, listen to this, has historically decided to go first, now takes his proper place at the back. But think about what we, we see early on in the life of Jacob. We don't have the time to get all into it right now, but go back to and consider what we see in Genesis chapter 28. Jacob walks in and he takes charge. He does his thing. Man, the Lord's grace to transform the heart of Jacob. And so we're left asking then, how are we to respond in light of what we see here this morning? Man, Jacob has experienced the tangible love and forgiveness of God, resulting in this feeling of fellowship and reconciliation. And now in response to the transforming power of grace, Jacob desires forgiveness and reconciliation with his brother Esau. This is the power of the gospel at work, even here, even now. If in and for the life of Jacob, man, how much more for you and I. Let's consider in this moment as we prepare to come to the table and we, and we see literally the, the cost of, Right, the sacrifice for our reconciliation with God. Consider broken relationships that are in need of being reconciled. Right, maybe it begins here. Right, maybe this is what it looks like. Maybe there's this recognition of exploration of the person of Jesus, but never submission to his lordship. Never true reconciliation realized. Or maybe there's this realization that, man, I have experienced the benefit of reconciliation with God, but I'm not acting in light 
of the grace that I've received. I've got broken relationships and a trail of carnage behind me that is in need of being swept up. This could be super practical. Right? It might look like you literally need to step outside right now and make a phone call. Right? And know that I'm not going to be offended and, and nor would anybody else be in this room if you were to do that. Because I believe that that's what this passage calls us for. We, we see the relational reconciliation that we are beneficiaries of and now we respond in similar fashion, desiring that in all things people would be left going, man, what an incredible God who reconciles people to himself and then creates a spirit of reconciliation within them. And this is, this is love, and this is beautiful, and this is a really, a really neat way that we are able to respond accurately to what we see as we consider what it looks like to live the regenerate life this morning. Hey, let's pray together um, as we prepare to come to the table.